0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd. My guest today on the program is Adam Bronkowski, author of Cultural Responses to Occupation in Japan. Adam, welcome to the program. Thanks, Andy.
1: Good to be here. Thanks for inviting
0: me. Sure, no problem. Uh, First off, I wonder if you might give us some of your kind of personal slash scholarly background and how you became interested in Japanese culture, particularly this sort of post-1945 period that you write about in the book?
1: Yeah, so uh, I, uh, I I guess my interest in Japan came from uh, having lived there as a, a junior high school student, um, moving from tiny little Canberra in Australia to Megalopolis, Tokyo in the 1980s. Um, I lived there with my mother, and then I learnt – Japanese, you know, knocking around with kids at school, and then I uh, came back as a undergrad exchange student for a year on a Japanese government scholarship and studied more and learned a bit more about Japan. And then I came back again to make a documentary about Japanese subcultures. Um, later on, once I'd started as a theatre artist, um, and then it went from there, i came back again in the early 2000s where I joined a Japanese theater company called Gekidang uh, Kaitaisha, which means theater of deconstruction, a uh, very light term and, and uh, I also uh, started went back to academia in that time because uh, well to to be paid as a theater professional in Japan is a little bit more difficult. Uh, So I had to have some sort of uh, vocation outside. So I uh, got a scholarship and did my master's. And then I went on enjoying that uh, into a PhD. And from there I wrote the book. So the interest in the uh, post-1945 period, I guess, is trying to understand uh, the theatre that I was making, what its roots were, what its ideas were, uh, what it derived from, what what were the political and social conditions it kind of emerged from and was immersed in, um, and how in particular in Japan, uh, given that long kind of interspersed experience I had with Japanese culture, how Japan that I knew in the 1980s and 90s uh, had come about because there was a very pronounced interest in Japan and still is in that period and the influences of that period as reflected in the works of artists. Uh, So, you know, your classic anime, for example, uh, Akira, which was the big one when I was uh, growing up, was that a sort of dystopian world of cyberpunk that was permanently uh, obsessively reflecting on the, the image of the bomb as some big white flash And then the after effects is sort of mutagenic after effects in this this post-apocalyptic punk world. Uh, So I was really interested in how that history kept on being repeated and reflected and reinterpreted, reimagined, and why.
0: Mm. Could you give us kind of a, a big picture overview of what the argument of your book is and the claim that you're making about this period in Japanese history?
1: Yeah, so, so the book's um, the product of all of that uh, trajectory, I guess, in my life um, through theatre and academia, but also in Japan. Um, so it's got quite a lot in it. It's quite dense. Um, there's quite a lot of theory, but also his history and politics. Uh, I was really interested to connect theatre with uh, political context to historical context as well as theory Um so it's not your run-of-the-mill sort of performance studies text uh, that just might interpret the works of the artist um, in, within a frame of studying, say, performance or, or theatre. Uh, it's taking more of a, a, a wider lens, looking at history and politics as well, with the idea that, you know, I've always thought that theatre should and can um, engage in political and social ideas at a broader scale and shouldn't be, you know, permanently um, trying to fit within an entertainment model uh, that, you know, has has that prerogative of just uh, keeping the audience captivated in a particular way without uh, engagement in the b- bigger ideas, in the sort of transformative ideas. So that, that might be ambitious but, you know, that's what I guess my studies have led me to as a conclusion about what theater has always done as a social function um so in terms of this book i look at the uh, company i worked with uh trying to understand their work um they are a contemporary uh theater company i guess that focuses mainly on the body uh and movement and has they call themselves a theater company which is kind of uh, confusing for uh, a western theater maker and an audience I guess because theater always been understood as distinct from dance and performance because it uh, has a, a script has characters you know naturalism and realism that kind of thing but I guess they call themselves a theater company because they also wanted to distinguish themselves from uh from modern dance and uh, postmodern dance, the dance tradition in that way uh, nevertheless they wanted to focus on on the body um, but they also derived their work the key makers in the company the choreographer, main choreographer and the director uh, strongly influenced uh, by the uh, founder or co-founder of uncleko Buto, or Buto as we know it today um, uh, Hijikata Tatsumi and Ono Kazuo, and uh, Hino Hiroko, who's the uh, main choreographer of Kaitaisha, she, was, uh, she proudly uh, n- names herself as Hijikata's last student before he died. So uh, they had mm. a very, you know, teacher and student in that tradition have very close uh, relations and they, they maintain their relation to their student right until the end of their careers. So there's this kind of, I guess, artisanship where they hand down um, from teacher to student, from teacher to student like that through the generations, knowing their legacy. I guess theatre makers do the same uh, in the West as well. So they identified strongly with puto. And so what I did in my um, analysis and research of kaitaisha, to understand their roots and their influences was to trace back to Butoh and to Hijikata and Ono and the ideas and the the uh, the movement form and the uh, the practical um, concepts and uh, and form behind the work, tracing how uh, those ideas uh, were first originated with Butoh but then were translated and interpreted and changed in a different context in the eighties and nineties by uh, Kaitaisha uh, into the 2000s so yeah I joined Kaitaisha in 2001 um, and worked with them for a number of years before then coming back to Australia
0: so, so um, you talk about the the form of buto, um, i I feel like for somebody with a maybe stereotyped image of what Japanese culture is like we might think that Japanese culture is all about sort of very clean lines and this sort of minimalist aesthetic. Uh, this, But Buteau is a very kind of unruly art form, right? It's a very, like, embodied and, and sometimes grotesque uh, form of, of dance theater. Could you give a, uh, our listeners a kind of brief description, kind of formally what Buteau is all about? Yeah, sure. So
1: Buteau has gone through many uh, generations. Now I think third generation And many different uh, styles and variations within that trajectory, and you know, even within the Butoh world, there's still debate about certain artists whether they're doing Butoh or not. um, What Mm. Butoh actually is, Um, there's no clear definition, and there's been a long-running debate in academic circles who have uh, been interested in Butoh about what Butoh actually should be or is, or who said what, and whose legacy which butoh dancer is performing within, um, that kind of thing. That said, um, yeah, the image of butoh, the, the mainstream, general, the well-known image uh, that you're describing about clean lines and the, the kind of the white body, uh, the white painted body or, or the body in, in white uh, rice flour um, with very clean, minimal aesthetics, uh, is probably f- derived from one strand of buto, which would be your Sankai-juku um, as probably the, the best-known company that have uh, travelled internationally, um, but also Daidakudakan, which is uh, Maro Akaji's uh, company, company that have also been engaged within the same generation. For you know, around 30, 30 or forty years. I mean, Bhutto dancers are incred- incredibly fit, and so they manage to you know keep going um, forever. Butoh dancers never, never, never die. Their their rice flour just you know wears off or something like that. Um, <laughs> they're, they're incredible um, as a as a as a discipline. You know that supposedly has no form. They seem to maintain their practice. Um, and it sustains their lives. So, you know, Kazuo Ono, one of the founders, lived to over a hundred, and, uh, you know, he was still dancing in his wheelchair. Um, I, I remember mm-hmm. one performance I saw where he was, came out for the encore and you know, people were throwing flowers, and he had so many flowers uh, on, his, on him in his wheelchair that you couldn't see him, but all you could see was his hand still sort of dancing, moving, as if he was throwing a ball mm-hmm. up in the air. He had very big hands. He was known for his big hands, even though he was very, he performed the the feminine. He was always performing as a in women's costumes, female costumes. Um, yeah, so so he was a bit of a legend. He lived longer than Hichikata, um, he, Even though Hichikata was younger than him, about twenty years younger. And uh, so the earlier form of buto beyond you know earlier than uh, the. Daidakurakan and Sankai Juku, um, who were famous in the 1980s, from the 1980s on, um, was Ono and Hichikata and their first generation of students. And I was interested in understanding their work and their ideas, the sort of early form of buto, if you like, the really rough uh, form when it was still prototypical. Um, In particular... Uh, Hichikata, but also Orno, they're, they're, even their their uh, makeup, their white um, body makeup, body mask, was much rougher. It was much thicker. So Hichikata was using this sort of plaster almost in the very early performances mm. that w- would crumble off uh, the bodies as they performed. Um, like, you know, when you do early plaster cast, uh, it's that kind of rough lumpy uh, texture rather than the refined uh, you know kabuki or geisha um, kind of very uh, uh, faultless uh, perfect kind of mask that were was later used in that sort of refined aesthetic this early puto was much rougher um, and it was in a rougher time too you know it was emerging in the in 1960 or 1959 was the first official performance, although Hichikata and Ono were both doing performances before that with with many artists around town, Um, in Tokyo that is. Both of them came from from northern rural areas of Tohoku, uh, which is in the northern region of Japan, (coughs) of the main island. And uh, they were responding to a time where Tokyo was still very polluted with the factories and, and the coal, uh, they were, which were using coal and spewing out coal dust into, into Tokyo, which was kind of covered with a, a, a film of grime. Um, during the, the period of recovery from, from the devastation of the war, uh, where, you know, 65 major cities were bombed to roughly 80% of their existence, uh, at the end of the war. So you have a lot of rebuilding, uh, recovery, but also rapid development. So the Kodo Sergioki, which is the rapid industrialisation that happened in that f- 1950s, 60s period, meant that there was an incredible amount of congestion, pollution, building sites um, when they, they were reconstructing the, the, crane, the train system, for example, Uh, going on in major cities in japan only in the 70s were those factories uh started to get moved out of the cities and into rural areas and then overseas so you know the the megalopolis that i saw in the 80s in tokyo during the bubble when japan was number one economy in the world um was radically different from this 50s 60s period which I i i thus became fascinated by because i wanted to to know a different tokyo and where it had been built from if that makes sense and that would explain sure. also that situation would explain why the aesthetic emerged and so i was really interested in making that connection between that historical trajectory of those cities in in japan and also the movement form that came out of it um so i guess hijikata uh in particular i focused on and He was from a rural area, like I said, and he was one of the emigres to the cities uh, of Japan in the 1950s looking for work, seasonal workers, you know, huge population of rural uh, workers coming to cities in that period, Um, and he expressed that aesthetic of the grimy worker, of the rural farmer, of the the sort of marginal um, populations who were not of the cultured elite. Um, and he was making an art form out of those characters, a kind of a marginal population of outcasts, if you like. And I guess I've always been attracted to outcast marginal culture. Um, And so, yeah, that was really fascinating to me.
0: And then another theme that you explore in the book is the experience of occupation Mm. following the Japanese defeat in the Second World War. So, could you talk a bit about how the experience of occupation uh, by I, by by the American uh, you know state uh, affected the development of Butoh?
1: Yeah. So in that period as well, you have this, like I was saying, this recovery period. Fukko is the is the word of uh, Japanese recovery in the post war. This was the famous kind of phoenix from the ashes. Um, miraculous economic rise of Japan that has been ever since reiterated in Japanese history books, um, which was, I guess, a little bit of a a uh, myth-making exercise, which was because you have the Korean War, right, in 1950, um, and you have the Korean War being conducted on the US side or the UN side from Japan, from US bases in Japan, um, which had been established from 1945 with you know the first invasion of US troops uh, after the, um, or just before the formal surrender of Japan, but after Japan's surrender on the 15th of August, they come in with over 400,000 troops and they set up US military bases and installations all over the country, all over the islands. Um, in particular, they take Okinawa as U.S. territory, as a basically a garrison state, um, and they set up bases there, certainly, but also throughout Japan uh, uh, on the main island uh, and surrounding Tokyo, actually, uh, five major bases, some of the largest in the world at that time, were built. Because Japan was such an important territory uh, as part of uh, U.S. geostrategic planning, to be able to, you know, project its power, forward projection is what they call it, um, into East Asia. So towards, you know, their their target, which was to be able to contain the People's Republic of China, which wasn't the PRC yet, it was still in civil war. Uh, but anticipating that that would be necessary with you know, the anticipated conflict with the Soviet Union but also the Socialist Bloc. So Japan was central to the US geostrategic planning of the Cold War, which they already knew, that US planners already knew was going to take place during World War II. They were planning for the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a second stage of war, if you like, um, of US, you know, um, grand strategy. Um so, so the Cold War was already in formation in, during World War II and Japan was central, a linchpin uh, of an arc of bases or a crescent of bases that goes along the east coast of China and, you know, uh, Far East in uh, uh, Russia um, and right down to the Philippines, down to even as far around as Indonesia, I guess you could say, as an arc of bases that the U.S. Um, consolidated in their bilateral alliances with those countries as part of a security doctrine. And uh, it was formally called the Truman Doctrine. Uh, but it's had many iterations since, and it's, we're still living in that in that uh, grand strategy now, in that sort of po- what's called the post-war international order. That grand strategy is part of that order. Um And U.S. bases, I mean, now we have 800 plus around the world. Um, So, you know, Japan is is crucial, is a crucial part of that. And the Japan-U.S. alliance, as a result, has been really close, um, which has been also an economic alliance. Um, So in this period, you know, there's a whole lot of uh, farmers moving to the cities because there's no work in rural areas, including little Hijikata um, setting up his strange avant-garde um, dance form. And that, I argue, is a reflection of a condition in Japan that is essentially an occupied condition, um, an occupied condition by a foreign power that has uh, over 400,000 troops and they're just re- reduced over the years down to about forty. 45,000 now um, in Japan, but always a U.S. presence in Japan that the Japanese people and Japanese government uh, have had to negotiate. And and what we see throughout this period during the Cold War in Japan is people, Japanese people, students, um, union members, uh, labourers, workers, ordinary people um, rising up in waves of protest against that occupation because they thought that at the end of the war they were going to finally have a democratic government that was going to represent the interests of the Japanese people um, as an autonomous entity. The people would have sovereignty. um, They would be able to vote for their parliamentary Um, representatives who would represent their views in a contested you know adversarial space of parliament and politics would run like that and they would finally have their own say and be able to you know be have their own will um, and bodies represented in 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 politics but it never really went that way unfortunately you know you've got one um, political party who has been in power for over 70 years cumulatively. That's the the LDP. So it's what's been called a one-and-a-half party system uh, where you've hmm. got one major party and then the rest of little parties that have had a look in and have had a little bit of a say but can't really determine the outcomes, uh, political outcomes, in, in that political space in Japan. And that has been aided very much and very closely by um, the U.S., by the ties, the alliance with the U.S. So those people who rose up in waves of protest against that occupation, uh, against the military occupation, knew, recognized from at least 1950, if not before, that the U.S. influence was very strong and was uh, affecting uh, Japanese autonomy, uh, political autonomy and democratic process. And that was really evident because they saw a lot of the wartime officials, for example, leaders, return to government in the post-war, a phenomenon that wasn't just uh, unique to Japan. It was also happening in West Germany, for example, where you have former Nazi officials returning to government, Um, what is known as the rehabilitation process of former wartime officials to political positions. Um, So they felt betrayed. Enormous betrayal. And I guess this sort of occupied condition um, is one where you don't feel that you have complete uh, autonomy and independence, national independence. You can't uh, determine your own uh, country's uh, directions and decisions and outcomes because you're permanently in relationship with another government, which is the US government. So I guess the butto form, to bring it back to theatre, is to say this fascinating form that focused mainly on the body and was quite silent, didn't use any text at all, um, was like a contorted, twisting, um, uh, masked body uh, that that was covered in white plaster, lumpy plaster, um, that concealed an identity that had been suppressed in Japan because that was antithetical to the direction that was being determined by two governments, the US and the Japanese government, um, with two heads of state, you know, the emperor uh, and the prime minister in Japan, but also the US president, or or during the military occupation, the formal military occupation, uh, under the supreme command of Allied powers under General Douglas MacArthur, um, by, you know, the U.S. Uh, leader in Japan until 1952. So you've got this weird, what I call a bicephalous uh, state, dual-headed, um, that uh, the Japanese people had to follow and had to take orders from because, you know, military occupation is basically martial law. Um uh, but even after 1952, I still I, I, I argue this, that Japan is still occupied because it still has a very prominent foreign presence, foreign military presence, that is distorting and contorting the, the national politics um, uh, and, and the, the democratic process. And, and has for a long time. This is not unique, of course, to Japan. Many other countries um, have this sense of lack of independence or real democracy um, since the 1945 period because of these larger
0: geostrategic and geopolitical concerns. So um, in, in terms of the, the kind of uh, aesthetics of butoh could you give us a sense of, you know, if we were to go back in time to the 1950s and see our production that Hijikata Tatsumi uh, put on, you know, what what would we see on this stage? And, and and kind of what would be, you know, what are the what are the aesthetic characteristics of this performance? You mentioned the kind of uh, you know, the 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 lumpy makeup and the the white and the very minimalist kind of stage setup, but what is what what happens over the course of the event? Yeah, so Obviously, it would depend on the production, but can you give us a kind of general sense of what the the, the aesthetic and formal characteristics of the form would be?
1: Yeah, so I think it's really idiosyncratic. I mean, um, if a little bit, um, not shambolic, but uh, not, not your typical kind of well-made uh, theater or dance piece that you would see with high production values that you'd see today, um, this is also partially was a, attracted to this early form of Angkor Kuputu. It was much more raw and um, the, the ideas and the, the form and the choreography and the scenes were not fitting into what you might call formal dance or theatre or uh, performance uh, that, uh, as we know it today. You know, it was a kind of hodgepodge of a whole lot of ideas and images and movements and um, costume and uh, sonography uh, to to reflect very particular conditions of the time, right, that I was just outlining before. Now, Hichikada was known for um, several famous uh, landmark performances as Angkokubuto, Um He was also a performer, so he performed in many other shows as well. But the major ones that we know from the uh, historiography are uh, Kinjiki or Forbidden Colours, which is named after Mishima's famous novel uh, that was performed in 1959. And then you have another one called Anma, which means blind masseurs, and that was uh, 1963, Rosy Coloured Dance in 1965, Um, and then his kind of piece de, de resistance, which is the Hijikata Tatsumi and Japanese People, the Revolt of the Body, or Nikitai no Handan in 1968. Uh, this is a uh, a time of tension and conflict in Tokyo where all these protests are going on, uh, led by students and union members, uh, against the renewal of the Mutual Security Treaty with the United States. So there's a there's a very energetic environment in which Hijikata is putting putting on these shows but Kinjiki for example uh was performed as part of the formal Japanese dance association um which was probably used to doing uh uh chamber pieces to European composers so you know Chopin mm-hmm. or um Lidst or something like that and um gotta puts on this show called Forbidden Colours after a, a book by Mishima uh, that is about a homoerotic relationship between uh, a Japanese boy and a US GI who's, uh, well, at least this is part of it. Um, this, is, this is part of the story, but this is, this is the main characters that are represented in, in, in the show. And uh, Ono Yoshito, who's the son of Ono Kazuo, he performs the the young girl or boy, it's an effeminate uh, character, uh, with a lemon yellow scarf and uh, very pale skin and uh, and has a sort of a, a gentle, soft, fluid movement. And Hijikata has painted himself black uh, with olive oil and grease paint. Um, and he's sort of the the masculine uh figure although it's never stated that these are the characters that they're specifically representing uh and uh, the the implication is pretty much clear and the music is a kind of popular genre using blues harp and uh, a kind of downbeat street uh music that is popular so not classical not european popular street Mm -hmm. culture and referring to some sort of relationship between a a black GI and a Japanese person, uh, that is sexual. So they, they get kind of pushed out of the Japanese dance association almost immediately. Um, and thus, you know, Uncle Kupujo is born, but, um, so it's scandal essentially, uh, of what you crossing a, a, a threshold by transgression and, and talking about a taboo. There were many in Japan during, uh, during this period, um, and that taboo was some sort of idea of uh, black Japanese sexual relationship or Afro-American mm-hmm. uh, Japanese sexual relationship, let alone homoerotic, um, let alone with a foreign occupier who you're not supposed to fraternise with. Of course, there was heaps of fraternisation in Japanese clubs around US bases all the time. Um, so so this was a, a real uh, shock to... To what was considered uh, acceptable in in uh, social mores of the time, and what was considered culture or dance uh, or or refined aesthetics to be appreciated by a, a rarefied uh, Japanese audience. So, so that was his his launch, and it was really successful. And from there, he built uh, on the form. And so, anma again was a different aesthetic, uh, which had. Old women from, uh, well, they were probably in Tokyo, but they were wearing clothes that indicated that came, they came from a rural area, playing shamisen. Anma means blind masseur, which is, uh, which is a tradition in Japan of blind people being, becoming masseurs, uh, uh, women in particular, and they would be almost shamanic in their healing uh, skills uh, through touch so So this was referring to a kind of culture that was being rapidly um, erased in the rapid modernization of Japan. Not that Japan wasn't already modernized, but it was its industrialization was expanding uh, in this 1950s period. And that culture was considered shameful or backward or primitive, or kind of somehow, um, indigenous and to be embarrassed by, it because Japan was on the move; it was becoming this techno-scientific, uh, hyper-industrialist capitalist power, right? Returning to the world stage after having been defeated, um, it was already that, but it was doing it even more in this period. And Hichikata was saying, "No, we still have these, this culture, this rich tradition, this." Um, this legacy that we should not forget. And so he had uh, young men in this thick white plaster throwing baseballs at each other. Um, uh, he rode in on a, oh, I think it was, yeah, I think it was him. He rode in on a bicycle halfway through the performance. Um, they had a massive map of a human body with, uh, with the points, uh, with the uh, Chinese medicine points on it. Uh, They had someone swinging in the swing on the stage. Uh, People called out from the audience when they saw something they liked or recognized or identified with. You know, this kind of um, atmosphere was generated almost like a street festival performance, you know, where people Mm -hmm. felt free to engage uh, vocally while the performance was ongoing, rather than that sort of still um silenced form of reception as if you're listening to a classical orchestra or something like that so yeah that was anma and then um uh with the the later work say hijikata the revolt of the body that was a solo that was hijikata's solo performance uh landmark solo performance 1968 100 years since the modernization of japan under meiji the restoration of the emperor um and he gives this kind of costume performance where he changes many times into different costumes. Uh, One of the famous ones is he's wearing a gold um, prosthetic phallus strap on um, with wild black hair, and he's um, smashing into hanging brass plates uh, that make a sort of like a massive symbol. you know, he's making these crashing sounds. And then he gets in a ball gown with black gloves on. Uh, then he's doing a kind of uh, like an Argentinian tango with castanets. Uh, <laughs> he, you know, he he's a mm. schoolgirl skipping with a skipping rope with his hair and pigtails, and then finally he ties himself up in a loincloth and pulls himself from the stage by ropes as if a sort of a sacrificial um uh uh gift i guess to the audience and oh, he takes me. the yeah and he takes the uh applaud the 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 curtain call with a fish in his mouth so this is a a famous performance <laughs> I, I mean this is not i'm not doing it justice obviously and it's been forensically right, right. dissected by many scholars inc- including bruce baird who's a wonderful um uh, butour scholar uh, but many many others um in other um Mikami Kayo, uh, Kuniyoshi Kazuko, all of these scholars have engaged with this work, Ishii Tatsuro, um, because it's so evocative and because I, I guess it, it was like maybe ahead of its time in terms of a, a, a performance, live, live performance quality, you know, performance art mixed with, with uh, theatre, live, live art kind of approach. If you want to see it like that, you could also see it as continuing in the Dada tradition of performance, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, in the avant-garde theatre tradition from Alfred Jarry, you know, the Ubu Roy or that kind of legacy, which I point out at those connections in the book. So, yeah, uh, that's your kind of world that uh, Boutot was engaged in at that time.
0: So it's very clear from your descriptions that engagement with history, engagement with tradition is a big part of Hijikata's work. In the political context of the time, would that work have been understood as, I don't know, broadly conservative or broadly left-wing, or is that a, a frame that's not useful in analyzing the political implications of this work?
1: No, no, it's incredibly useful. I mean, I think that, you know, theater is inextricable from from historical conditions um, and political conditions and social conditions. You can't separate them. You have to understand what was going on at the time but what has preceded it in order to understand how that work uh, is manifesting what has gone on. The fact that they're working from the body itself, for me, says that they're engaging with history because the body is the sum of everything that has taken place beforehand, you could go back right until the beginning of time. But, um, but not just scientifically, the body is the sum of the, the gestures and the movements and the relationships and the, the historical conditions that that body and its descent, its um, forebears have lived through. So, you know, if you've got a, if you've got a bad toe but that you've inherited from your uh, parents and their parents that's likely because of some kind of uh, labor or conditions that those, that those uh, forebears engaged with, right? So, um, so, so yeah, it's a permanent engagement with history. And I'd say that uh, I, I read Hijikata's works as mini uh, ethnographies of people's lives and life worlds mm. um, that they... That come out if you look closely enough, you can see you can delve into those works and you can find those people and the way that they lived um in those times who have often been forgotten and this is the argument that I make in in the book I say that you know these these life worlds and life ways have have been erased by the dominant uh, trajectory of historical progress, if you could call it that, or you know, modernization or capitalist development in Japan that was rapid, rapacious, um, so uh, forceful in the way that it erased history. Partic- well, not just because there was so much destruction to be cleared away, but also because that historical memory of that destruction was also at the same time being erased. So you've got this history problem being born at this time in Japan that has vexed Japanese society ever since of how to deal with what happened during the war, why it happened, who did what, what, um, who was responsible, and, you know, in order to um, take responsibility properly so as to prevent it from happening again. I mean, this is your classic um, study reason for studying history in the first place. But what I'm saying is that through theatre, We can also understand these histories, people's histories, um, that often get ignored because of the dominant focus in historiography on state politics and, you know, high officials and leaders and diplomats and this kind of um, history with a big H. Um, No, I think theatre is a wonderful way to try to understand human evolution um, and through the body in particular. So, yeah. Uh, the study of Butoh is the study of the history of the body. It's the study of um, forgotten uh, people's histories, micro-histories, uh, anthropology, uh, that kind of uh, engagement with traditions and cultures. And what you find mm. in, in Japanese history is this uh, not a, a monolithic um, kind of a homogenous national history which talks about the formation of the Japanese nation state from Meiji to the present, you know, with the restoration of the emperor and and the 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 kind of consolidation of the Japanese people as one nation and one people and one race. Um, no, what you find is that there's the Japan has a multiplicity or a polyphony is what I call it of. Um, ethnicities, of languages, of peoples who have moved in and out of the, those islands over a long period of time. But they've just been written out. So you've got the Ainu in the north, you've got the Ryukyu in the south, you've got any number of migrants who have gone through those islands from Korea, from China, from the Philippines, from the South Pacific, from even as far as South America as traders. or And you've got the Western influence, of course, moving throughout Japan all the time. Um, and you've got those histories that can be can be understood and therefore you change your understanding of what Japanese identity actually is. So I think, yeah, Bhutto also offers that opportunity to learn.
0: Great. I think this is a, a good opportunity to transition into talking about theater of deconstruction, which you mentioned a bit earlier could you talk about what the kind of political and aesthetic aims of theater of deconstruction were how they perhaps different differed from what hijikata was up to in uh, earlier decades yeah
1: so hijikata was very much a, um like i said he was traveling traveling back to his roots and and looking at the you know where his family had come from and what they'd experienced i also forgot to mention that Uh, Hichikata famously talked about how people from the north, from Tohoku, from the rural areas up there, were an internal colony, which meant that, you know, Mm. in the formation of Japan as a nation state, you had these areas that were gradually colonised by Kyoto and then Edo, the capital, as part of a homogenous homogenous nation. But they didn't feel like they were necessarily Japanese in the modern sense. They were people from Tohoku um, and they were farmers and they were rural villages and they felt, as a result, they resisted, actually, the restoration of the emperor uh, In war, militarily. They conducted military conflict to try to protect their territory from being assimilated. Um, and so forever since, people in Tohoku have had a slightly different view of the capital because they've always, what Hijikata said, was that they've always provided uh, geisha, soldiers, horses and rice so there were your classic mm. kind of internal colony that supplied the raw materials to boost the 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 primitive accumulation process of the capital, um, and in that period of the empire that was expanding into East Asia. So that said, that's a very important point because it's looking at the capital from the periphery rather than the other way around, um, and Butor comes from that, if you like, and. Hichikata was always trying to move back to that uh, area even though he was in Tokyo in that time. And he goes through different stages and towards the end of his life he tries to go back to his childhood and back to that understanding of looking at Japan from that perspective. So what Kaitaisha did, um, Shimizu Shinjin, who's the director and Hino Hiroko, who's the main choreographer, was that they reinterpreted um, Hichikata's work to to re it, to bring back the politics that he, Hijikata was trying to convey that got written out during the 80s, uh, which is a particularly apolitical time in Japan, um, in popular cu- cu- culture and consciousness at least, um, and to upgrade the images, I guess, that were being put on stage. So taking the fundamental uh, movement principles that were used uh, in Hikatata's day. but to put it more in a transnational or an international context, so Shimizu was is an autodidact. He's a you know reader of theory and history uh, as well as being a theater director. Um, and he has a much more uh, global perspective. So Japan by this point has recovered well and truly and is on the international in the international arena. Um, and has a much more, once again, international perspective. Um, so Hichikata never travelled overseas during his lifetime um, hmm. and it was very much about an internal process, about Japanese identity. But uh, Shimizu was is um, with Kaitaisha travelling all the time and while I was with, working with them, we travelled to many different places, great festivals, festivals. Um, uh, engaged with lots of different artists in sort of multicultural and multi- international collaborations, so much more uh, globalized perspective, if you, if you like. And, and Shimizu theorizes that as part of uh, not not from you know nation to the world, uh, but as a global system within a global distribution system. Um, and he 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 theorizes the human body. Uh, still, you know, very much through the lens of the body, um, within this global, uh, globalized system of, or global system of capitalism. Um, and he tries to understand in particular the human body in relation to the media, because he, he associates, um, globalization with, within ever intensifying mediation, um, a media system. So, uh, so he, his work and his sonography is placing those human bodies within that those structures of power. He's very much concerned with how uh, structures of power um, work but also how they inform how we see our bodies and how we work with our bodies, how we can work with our bodies in an embodied medium like live performance um, within this uh, what he calls a virtual system, which is you know very 1990s kind of postmodern theory, but mm-hmm. it's uh, pretty relevant still. I mean it, these things haven't gone away and they never go away. I mean, you know uh, to to your, your question about uh, the left uh, for example, um, and whether it's useful anymore to look at the world through those lenses i i don't think if you if you start to embrace a historical world view you know we're still dealing with 70 only just only 70 years 75 years since the end of world war 2 that's like a tiny little blip in terms of not only human evolution but planetary evolution so so it's not surprising that these themes um, continue to return. We're still living, unfortunately, in a period of empire. I don't think empire has really gone away either. Uh, it's just mm-hmm. taken a different form and a, a particularly powerful form uh, that is globalized, well and truly globalized. Um, so while Kaitaisha are making work, you know, you've got the emergence of the new sat wars, the satellite wars of, you know, say the Persian Gulf War, and then you've got the war in Yugoslavia, and then you've got uh, the Iraq war and Libya and Syria, etc. And these, these wars are all being communicated through satellite, so operated through remotely or virtually, as, as would, uh, sorry uh, Shimizu would say. So you've got this massive apparatus that is global using weapons in space or, or telecommand in space, as Paul Virilio would call it, um, to control these, these massive operations, military operations. With the individual body exposed to this power, what does that do to us? You know, how do we how do we reflect? How do we communicate and express ourselves and understand our conditions within this environment? I think that's where kaitasha really went with it, um, and it was really exciting um, to to experience that when I was working with them.
0: And how does that emphasis on kind of media saturation? You know, I think of maybe Guy Debord as as a kind of uh, you know society of the spectacle, that kind of an idea of uh, you know everything being through this screen uh, of, of of mediation. How does that show up in the work of theater de- of deconstruction in in kind of how they perform? Yeah, I mean, are they are they are they doing performing next to you know video screens, a la the Worcester Group, or or is it how do they uh, deal with those? Kind of technological theme.
1: Yeah. Um, so when I joined uh, in 2001, we went, we did a couple of workshops and then we went on a tour. And the tour was doing a production called Bye Bye The New Primitive. Um, bye Bye meaning goodbye, but also, or sayonara in Japanese, but also having a double meaning, which is bye bye, which is to um, sell, uh, to consume, and to sell. Uh, and so we go on this tour and we're performing in Europe, in Frankfurt, Dusseldorf, uh, Hamburg. And then the September 11 attacks happen and we're Mm. scheduled to perform at the New York, uh, Japan society, um, 10 days after. So we fly into New York and, you know, people are still kind of eaten lockdown, um, not coming out of their houses. And you can still smell the, the, the concrete dust, um, from, you know, way up in, in the mid fifties, um, from the explosions and, or from the collapse of the buildings. And for many in the audience who come to see the show, it's the first time they've come out of their houses really, um, and the show is, it's about Japanese history. So it's, you know, it's using words like Meiji Taisho Showa, which are the names of the, the pre-war and wartime emperors. And, you know, there's a quote from Article 9, which is the Jap- in the Japanese Constitution, which is written in 1947 primarily by the US occupiers, which is saying that the Japanese will forego the use of um, military force in settling international disputes. So it's basically the peace clause which has restrained Japan from not from rearming but from engaging in in international conflict to settle disputes. Um, forever and a day right and that that uh, constitution has been under constant contestation in japan by particularly by conservative forces to become you know to get rid of it to revise it to become a normal nation and to be able to engage in war overseas um which japan then actually does in in the iraq war in 2003 two years later um and it also shows well me being the only white performer at that time in the company, in the show. It shows me um, slapping the back of a a smallish woman uh, performer who's painted grey with a mouse tail and a Roman centurion's helmet, and she's and when I slap her, she she spits blood and she says the names of the emperors. So. That kind of evocative, historical, political imagery, let alone, you know, the, the shock of me slapping a woman repetitively on the back so that you can hear the slaps, right, um, is confronting to the people in the audience. And a lot of them stay back for the after talk and they ask Shimizu, look, you know, we know... And, and also I forget... mention there's an image that is um uh there are images of basically uh of aerial bombing and the sounds of helicopters and gunfire and explosions Mm -hmm. and um you know in certain parts of the show uh and sonography that is to suggest a battlefield um a modern battlefield you know you get images you think of vietnam or you think of uh, the Gulf War, or Pers- Persian Gulf War, or something like that. And they say, Look, we know this show is about us, uh, but we're good people. Why has this happened to us? Referring to September eleven, And that was the time when wow. I decided to go back to <laughs> academia. <talk> <laughs> 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 That's when I thought, okay, there's a master's. <laughs> <So> <laughs> yeah, wow. So I wanted to understand. Not only, I mean, there was a really leading question because it was like, well, <laughs> what news are you reading? What have you been reading? Right. You know, what story have right. you been told? Um, what is history doing? How is history formed? How is this narrative shaped? What have you been, you know, have you been living under a rock? Um, why don't you understand this? Um, and I thought that was a really and even good that, start.
0: Even that anecdote of, the clause in the Constitution forbidding Japan from engaging in military aggression is like just an extraordinary example of kind of the arrogance of American imperialism in that you know you you bomb a country with two atomic bombs and with countless fire bombs and then you make them sign a pledge to be peaceful and diplomatic I mean that's just. <laughs> That's just perfect, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's
1: like, you know, it's, it's like tying someone's hands behind their back and then tickling them and telling them not to laugh. Yeah. Um, yeah to, to make a massive understatement. But, um, yes, that's right. And the atomic bombs have always been used as, well, at first were used as a, as a kind of blackmail, as a form of terror, which is to say, look, if you don't comply... Um, we're going to do it again or we're going to threaten you with this massive force until you comply. But what gets missed in that narrative is also, of course, the erasure of the war of aggression that the Japanese Empire conducted, right? So the the expansion Mm -hmm. first, you know, since Meiji, since 1868, the Japanese were all... Expanding, you know, they, they colonised first Hokkaido and, and Okinawa um, from the indigenous there, the Kuruls, the Sakalin. Um, they expanded into Taiwan, uh, into Korea, um, in through war, of course. This is how it was done or is done. You you contest to show who's got the most amount of power and then you claim their territories like like trophies and, you know, it doesn't matter what the locals think. You then govern or rule or uh, um, use those territories for your own empire's strengthening um, to continue to expand, and this is precisely what the United States has done since. Well, you know, we could say since the beginning, since since uh, seventeen seventy five or six. Yeah, well, or maybe us. the genocide of yeah. the Native American Indian people. Um, yeah, even before that. Yeah, before that in the in the seventeenth century. Uh, with the Puritans, but um, and interestingly enough, I mean Hichikata has a great performance called Smallpox, um, mm. uh, which Tan, which was a beautiful performance because he was playing a, an old woman um, or dancing an old woman, and he sort of moved really stiffly, like he'd been working in a rice paddy for fifty years. And he performed on really high geta, which are those wooden sandals, you know, with the, the blocks underneath. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. And he, you know, he, he uh, tilted them forward and did that sort of hunched over uh, posture. And there was a the sound of a crow in the background and he was wearing a, a shabby old kimono and, uh, from a rural area. And it was very, uh, the sound of wind, that's right, very harsh, cold, rural area, wind. That figure... Is the agrarian figure that has been exposed to the violence of this expansive power and force that we're talking about, whether it was under Japanese Empire or American Empire, is no difference. Mm. Um, those figures are the people who have been had their hands tied behind their backs and not asked and asked not to protest or to fight. I'm not talking about the state, you know, the Japanese state as having a claim. I'm talking about the people who have been exposed to the dual-headed um, a oh, multi-headed uh, force and power and abuse and domination of those empires. Those are the people that haven't spoken and we haven't heard, uh, and it's continued. And those are the
0: people. Yeah. Sorry, those are the people that Hichikata and others in the Butoh tradition are, in some ways, trying to give, maybe not voice to, because it's not a vocal, uh, not particularly vocal art form, but trying to give representation to, in some way, the people who've been. Kind of forgotten and left out of the historical narrative.
1: Yeah, those are the people I'm. I'm saying that uh, Hijikata was giving voice to, and and Ono to some extent um, was giving voice to. But you know, people in the Butoh tradition have different perspectives on this, uh, just as they have different perspectives and politics on uh, on Japan and on Japan's Japanese Empire and on the U.S. So. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll you'll find a lot of uh, maybe implicit, maybe not direct, but you'll find tacit debate and disagreement within Butor circles about this because, you know, Japan goes it through a very nationalist phase in the 1980s. It is still, but um, you find also that some of the Butor dancers were quite nationalist in the sense that they were claiming victimhood mm-hmm. from the atomic bombs um, and that they were dancing somehow the victims of those bombings and the aerial bombings. Uh, which, you know, we're indiscriminate, disproportionate, we should never forget that, um, but they're also not recognising any responsibility for the aggression uh, of the Japanese Empire, which actually led to, you know, that we don't even know the numbers of how many people died um, and were maimed during that period of imperial expansion and, and aggression. So even though we have pretty accurate numbers of what happened in Europe, so... You know, it ranges from between conservatively from about ten million to about twenty-two million, um, but actually it could go anything up to about thirty-six or thirty-eight million. But we mm-hmm. don't talk about those people because those people's histories—precisely the ones I'm talking about, particularly in East Asia, uh, in Vietnam, in China, in um, in uh, the Philippines, in Indonesia—are not. Are not included in historical texts, mm-hmm. so so they they don't get remembered, even though they've got lives and experiences and and histories and families and you know ancestors etc. And knowledge and religions, all that stuff, they just don't get included because of this dispensation that we've been living under um, mm-hmm.
0: since then. I spent a semester studying uh, at Shanghai Theatre Academy. Oh wow. And uh, we saw a performance that, you know, the, the, the war against the Japanese is a very popular topic for film and, and television and, and theater yeah, uh, in, in China. Yeah. And we saw a play that was depicting the Japanese as these sort of like mustache twirling villains, you know. <laughs> and I, I, I was talking to a Chinese friend of mine on the way out of the performance and I have said, you know, I was kind of shocked to see the Japanese for trade, like like, like basically these Nazis. Yeah. And this friend of mine, just very straight faced, said to me, the Japanese were Nazis. <laughs> right. So, So yeah, I mean, we don't we don't think about we don't think about the ways that, uh, you know, certainly the Chinese and, and many other populations in East Asia were kind of uh, victimized by the Japanese before you know, before we started kind of uh, imposing similar forms of cultural occupation on them.
1: Yeah, well, you know, as a historian of Asia, I try to do this all the time, um, which is to try to encourage my students to think about it from all perspectives. Um, So on the one hand, yes, from the Chinese perspective, the Japanese empire were... um, they were they had it well they name it you know anti-japan war of resistance or something like this right Um, they don't
0: call it the second world war they call it the anti-japanese war yeah
1: um and you know the chinese also say well which war are you talking about because you know during the um the qing dynasty you've got an uprising you know that left 20 million dead so you know Mm. they've really been through the ringer for four or five hundred years at least um let alone fighting the mongols um but you've also got to remember that, yes, so the Chinese uh, have this perspective uh, of, of suffering the brunt of the Japanese imperial war machine, just like the Soviet Union has the perspective of suffering the brunt of the Nazi war machine. It wasn't the, wasn't the allies, wasn't the Western Anglo-American allies who won the war, it was the Soviet Union because they suffered so much of that war, uh, losing 27 million people. We have to remember that too. Uh, But we don't hear that, right? We only see wars. uh, Films like General Patton or this kind of stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, But also, you've got to remember that you know, slavery, for example, existed in Imperial China, just as it existed in, say, you know, in 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 uh, in the Aztecs or in the Mayans or in these pre-modern, pre-nation empires, similar formations and phenomena and dynamics manifested. So at the same time as criticizing the dominant Western narrative, uh, which is what many Japanese like to criticize, um, we also have to remember that this is not one civilization uh, that is wholly responsible for this dynamic in human history. Um, so a much more nuanced view would be to recognise yes Japanese war of aggression, uh, but Chinese imperialism too, um, in in the pre modern formation was extremely oppressive, <laughs> and it had tribute states and it had you no know, slavery and it had torture and it and it and it killed many people during uh, the building of the Chinese great Great Wall of China, uh, workers who were disposable etc. Um, under empire, so so what is it? really, that's driving this um, human capacity for, for violence, for extreme large-scale violence, is one of the themes, I guess, that Kaitaisha are looking at. Um, they don't go that far, but they're looking at it at the site of the body, so they're trying to look for primal causes um, of violence and, and, and power and force, trying not to erase that is one of the objectives, I think.
0: Well, Adam Bronkowski, or Bronowski, Bronowski I've taken... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Bronowski, yeah. yeah, sorry. <laughs> I've taken uh, so much of your time and, and thank you so much for this fascinating conversation. I, I really uh, feel like that idea of trying to uh, see all sides of these very complicated questions is something you model really beautifully in your book. So thanks so much for taking the time to talk about it on New Books and Performing Arts. I
1: was really glad for the opportunity. Thanks for listening and finding it interesting. I'm I'm glad that there are people out there who do. And yeah, if you're interested, (laughs) read the book.
0: (laughs) Yes, certainly. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye.